Welcome to Nursing Uncharted, a space to explore the rawness, realness, and boundless possibilities of nursing. Each episode, I'm sitting down with nurses to share our experiences from the field and hope to bring you laughter and inspiration as you navigate this demanding yet fulfilling profession. Make sure to subscribe so you never miss a guest. And let's get started with this episode. What's up, everybody? My name is Maggie Reichardt, and you are listening to another episode of Nursing Uncharted. Thank you, thank you, thank you for listening. And if you're here for the first time, welcome. We are happy to have you. We have extended our reach for the podcast out to social media platforms. Nursing Uncharted is on Instagram and YouTube, and the episodes live on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. So wherever you're listening, please give us a review on how you like the podcast and follow us on Instagram at Nursing Uncharted or subscribe to our YouTube channel. Today, we are going to be delving into a specialty in nursing that I I often overlook when thinking about inpatient nursing, and that is psychiatric nursing. And here to talk about this avenue of nursing with me is Sarah Richards. She is a newly certified psychiatric mental health nurse practitioner. Sarah has seven years of psychiatric nursing experience, including four years working in an acute inpatient psychiatric hospital setting and three years of community case management. Sarah will be starting the next step of her career at an outpatient community clinic in Boston, where she currently resides with her husband and their three-legged golden retriever, Sydney. Sarah, welcome to the show. Hi, Maggie. <laughs> it's so good to see you. Sarah and I went to nursing school together, so it's been like a solid, you know, seven seven years. Yes, likewise. Yeah. Psych psych nursing is like for me, it's like L and D or PEDS, right? Like three <laughs> months of it ten years ago. So I'm really I'm super excited to get into like what nursing looks like through your lens. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I've been listening to a few of your previous episodes, so it's been nice to hear kind of uh, some of the experiences of some of the people we went to school with and some of the different things they've been saying. So it's been really cool. Awesome. I'm glad you're listening. Well, I know, I mean, I remember back in nursing school, psych was a decision that you had made early on in your nursing career. So what what made you, was there something that specific that made you want to be a psych nurse or how did that, how did that evolve? Yeah. Um, so, I mean, I remember thinking that like class was always very interesting and mm -hmm. I enjoyed our clinical cause we were at a state hospital for clinical. Um, so I really enjoyed that. And I remembered, um, one of our professors talking about how there was a patient who was really, really just basically catatonic. He wasn't talking to anyone. They just, no one knew what to do for him. And she said that she looked into his eyes and she said, I, I think he's depressed. And she said she started him on an antidepressant. And, you know, three weeks later, he was up talking in the day room saying like, thank you. You saved my life. And that story really mm -hmm. stuck out to me. Um, and then I actually, for our capstone, turned my uh, paperwork request in late. And they were like, well, we've got psych. And I was like, okay, psych it is. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I got to work on an inpatient unit that I ended up staying on for two years. And it was just like from the first day, I remember coming home and talking to my roommates about it. And they were like, are you going to do this? I was like, I think so. I think this is what I'm going to do. That's so cool. Oh, I didn't know. It's so funny how life works out like that. Yeah. Right. <laughs> 
That's actually, actually, I almost didn't get into nursing school because I sent the paperwork in late. I like, I like didn't, I didn't submit. I think I submitted my whole application to my, my person that was writing a reference. And then he thought that was his final copy. So he didn't submit that. He only put in his like reference. And then everybody in our, in our group was getting like their acceptance letters and I didn't get one. I was like, all right, well, I guess, you know, it's just like next, next semester. And then people were like saying that they got like declining letters or something or like all of, I I didn't get a single email. I didn't get anything. I was like, oh no, (laughs) what happened? So we had 61 people in our nursing class because of me, because I sent mine in like, at, That's like, why we like had weeks, <laughs> weeks later. I feel like I everyone know. was oh. wondering if they were the 61st person. <laughs> it's me. It's me. <laughs> I just remember being so, so upset because I was like, this is a $9,000 mistake yeah. because yeah. I'm going to have to do like, you know, random classes for that semester. I don't know. But yeah, just like, I, I feel your pain on that one. <laughs> <laughs> you send things in late. Uh. Well, so just so people can get a sense of like the types of patients that we're talking about, go ahead and run through some of the patient populations that you work with, both, you know, back when you were in the inpatient setting versus also, um, you know, now going into your role as outpatient NP. Sure. Yeah. So in the inpatient setting, so in order to be admitted to an inpatient unit, um, the person basically needs to be a danger to them, a danger to themselves or someone else. Um, So either, you know, suicidal ideation, homicidal ideation, or, you know, inability to care for yourself due to acute psychosis or substance intoxication. And then we will also admit people for like substance detox. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's kind of the common diagnoses that you see in the hospital. And then my time in the community was more people with serious mental illness and focusing on their kind of health and wellness and helping them navigate the healthcare community. So a lot of people with mental illness, their lifespan is about 20 years shorter than the average population. Um, So I worked with a lot of people that had, you know, chronic schizophrenia, chronic Mm -hmm. personality disorders, things like that. It was like, okay, you know, we, we got to go to the dentist. We haven't been in five years. We have to do it and kind of just work together on to figure out like, how can we get transportation? How can we make the appointment? How can we remember the appointment? You know, all of that stuff. Um, and then I'm for my, as a prescriber role, I'm going to be kind of right in the middle. So I'm working on a, at a, uh, community clinic that focuses on LGBTQIA plus needs. Um, and so I'll be in their behavioral health department there. Uh, yeah. Prescribing, seeing people on an outpatient basis. That's so cool. Do you feel like, I mean, your case management experience has to be so valuable for that population. Now, now being a nurse practitioner, like you understand all of the things that, you know, all of the barriers and things that, that prevent people from getting their care. And I feel like that was probably such a good move, like going into your NP role. (laughs) Yeah, definitely. And it was really cool to see it from both sides because when I was on the inpatient side, you know, people, these case managers would say this, this person can't be sustained in the community. And I would Mm -hmm. say, I understand, but they don't have an acute mental need right now. So putting them in the hot, like they can't live in the hospital. Yeah. And so on the community side, I was like, please, this person has been through seven inpatient units. Like, I know that they can't live in the hospital, but can you please just like keep them for a little while longer? So I was really interested to see like 
to talk to me four years ago and be like, I understand. I felt the same way, but it's different. Um, That's so good to have that understanding. I feel like whoever is on the other side now that you're talking to, they probably appreciate. You're like, look, I know where you're coming from. I understand this, but. Yeah. So it was definitely really cool to see both sides. Yeah. I know in, in the inpatient setting, kind of like L&D and PEDS, I think a lot of nurses from other specialties and even in the flow pool, they don't float to psych units. Is that because of how specialized you have to be to work with those patients? Like, I think that maybe that's what piques my interest the most is because there's just so much that I don't know about the inpatient setting. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, I don't know. So the so I've worked at just a freestanding psychiatric hospital, and then I've worked on a psychiatric unit in a medical hospital. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, I don't know why people didn't float. I feel because I float pool for a little bit for a couple months, um, but mm-hmm. I didn't care for it too much. But um, mm-hmm. I feel like that was an option, and maybe just one that people didn't take. But we also too, I mean, we were fortunate at that medical standing hospital where we had a fair amount of nurses, and people mm-hmm. were actually being like put on call um, because our census and stuff would drop. So gotcha. I think we had enough people where, you know, at least for the majority of the time that I worked there, people weren't finding people to work wasn't as much of a problem. I think it is on some of the medical units. Gotcha. I feel like that's. To me, I mean, sometimes I think patients that have like psychiatric or mental disorders, it seems intimidating, mm-hmm. you know, to somebody that doesn't work with them like all the time. So I feel like that's kind of, that's surprising to me that, you know, you do have like a, a core group of, of staff for those units. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. It was, yeah, it was good when I, that was back in Virginia, um, where I started my career in Massachusetts, not so much, um, in Massachusetts, the hospital I was working at actually would mandate people if they couldn't find people. So you could end up working, you know, a double shift, um, when you hadn't Mm. planned on it. So that was a little bit tough. We hope you're enjoying this interview. We just want to take a quick break to talk about the company that makes this show possible. American Mobile. American Mobile takes pride in staffing leading healthcare facilities and hospitals with the nation's best nurses. As an American Mobile travel nurse, you'll have the opportunity to advance your nursing career, achieve financial stability, and meet other amazing nurses, all while traveling to new and thrilling places. Interested in learning more about the amazing benefits American Mobile has to offer? Visit AmericanMobile.com to connect with a recruiter and get started. Again, visit AmericanMobile.com to kickstart your travel nursing career. Now back to the episode. Going back to kind of, you know, not being around patients with chronic mental health conditions a ton, I think something that could maybe really be helpful for nurses and other disciplines to learn about our conversation today, you know, like in talking about how specialized psych nursing can be, you know, we don't really know how to talk to patients with chronic mental health issues sometimes, yet we do, we do end up taking care of them until they're medically ready to go to the psych unit. But, um, you know, can you shed some light on maybe what to say to some of those patients that might be spiraling into like a behavioral DS, you know, escalation or like what, what are good things to say, you know, 
how to address those patients. Yeah, sure, sure, definitely. And yeah, psych doesn't just live in the inpatient psychiatric unit. Um, and we, we are fortunate in that way that a lot of, I think because all of our rooms have to be so psych safe, um, mm -hmm. we're really not equipped to work with some of the more medically complex people. Um, mm -hmm. So that adds a whole nother level of kind of complication. You're trying to get this person's, you know, uh, you know, whatever's going on with them medically under control in addition to working on kind of their acute psychiatric issue. Um, so I, I have a lot of sympathy for people that are experiencing that. Um, I thought a little bit about this. I think for me, kind of two of the hardest diagnoses to work with are people who are really, really depressed and people mm -hmm. who are acutely psychotic. Mm -hmm. Um, so I think for people that are really, really depressed, it's kind of, I think because they are so low, so much of your energy is kind of coming out of you already just by kind of physically being in the same space. And then on mm -hmm. top of that, I think you're kind of trying to think like, what can I say to this person? Like, what can I say to like help bring them out of their depression and help them not feel so bad? Yeah. Um, and I think that kind of some of the most success I've had is not focusing so much on saying the right thing. And sometimes not even really saying anything, just being, being present, being in their room. Like five times, sometimes I'll just sit with people like quietly for a few minutes or, you know, kind of not trying to say that I understand or that it's going to be okay or things like mm -hmm. that. Just that, like, I hear you and I'm here for you and I'm holding space for you, you know? Yeah. Um, and I think sometimes that's enough. And that way you're not adding so much more stress onto yourself because mm -hmm. just by physically being close to the person, you're already really getting a lot drained from you. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's what I was thinking about in, in part of it being looking, seeming into intimidating for me is like thinking that you have to invest so much of your emotional you know, abilities into those patients, I feel like it would be draining, but that's a really great, like middle ground to where like you can be there for them. You're also protecting yourself. Sometimes you just need space. You know, there's not, you don't always need to know like the exactly right thing to say. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And I think too, um, there's this, you know, this idea that if someone yells at you, or if you say the wrong thing, like then, you know, that person, that person's psychotic. So you're not allowed to feel any kind of way about that. And I really encourage myself and a lot of people that I work with, like, yes, the person is still psychotic, is psychotic, but it sucks when someone yells at you. Like it hurts my feelings when people yell at me, like, and that's okay. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? You don't have to be inhuman. And like, yeah. I've said the wrong thing to people so, so many times. And they're like, you know, mm -hmm. yelling, really angry. And then I come back a little later and I say, Hey, you know, if they're in a place where they can process, maybe we process mm -hmm. through it together. They're not in a place where they can process. Usually they've forgotten. Um, yeah. one, one scenario, um, I had a, a patient who, uh, we were kind of doing our outdoor time and this patient was pretty psychotic. He had a pretty significant violence history. So we were being very careful. Um, and he was, you know, in a state of acute psychosis and he was standing up on this picnic table and he was, you know, telling everyone that they needed to bow down to him and he wasn't letting anyone go back outside, go back inside. So we, you know, we called a code, we walked him to seclusion. Mm -hmm. I was charged at that time. So I was really the person that a lot of the anger and, you know, was directed at. 
Um, he, he agreed to take some medicine by mouth, which helped. He stayed in seclusion for a little bit. And then he came out and he said, I'm really angry at you. I'm really angry. And I want to make a complaint. And I said, okay, you know, I can make a complaint. So I gave him a complaint for me. He goes, I, I don't speak English. I can't write in English. You need to write it for me. And I said, do you want someone, do you want someone else to do it? He's like, no, I want you. And so I sat there with him and wrote out the complaint about myself (laughs) (laughs) to submit. (laughs) But it actually ended up being really cathartic for both of us. And I felt like he like really appreciated me doing that. And I was like, you know, we can't, we can't keep people captive outside. And he was like, okay. So (laughs) it ended up being like a good debrief for both of us, I feel like. That's amazing. (laughs) Oh my gosh. Well, that also makes me so... What are the types of, even when people are in like acute psychotic episodes like that, what are the types of like activities that they're able to do? You said that like he was able to like participate in like outdoor activities and stuff. I mean, like, is there criteria where people are like, okay, like maybe that's not, you know, therapeutic for him at this time? Or like, how do you, how do you like figure out what would be right, you know, the right therapy for somebody at the right time? Yeah, definitely. Definitely. I mean, it definitely comes down a lot to like individual judgment. Um, you know, our units are fully locked. Um, and then even the outdoor areas are all locked, but we have, I mean, we've had people like scale fences and stuff. So Mm. you have to be kind of careful. Um, in Massachusetts, fresh air is considered a human right. So everyone has to be offered the ability to go out and get fresh air in some sense. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm probably a little more liberal with things because I just Mm. think that, you, you come into this hospital, right? You have to be completely strip searched. Mm-hmm. You can't have your phone. You can't have, you know, you can't wear drop pants or like sweatpants with strings in them. You mm-hmm. are being watched every 15 minutes, you know, and you have all this stigma and everything around you. So I just, I really try as much as I can to give people as much space. And mm-hmm. it, I'd rather err on the side of like, okay, this was a little too much and we need to pull back as opposed to mm-hmm. staying more on the conservative side. Yeah. Um, you know, everyone's a little bit different. Some people, you know, like to start out more conservative. Um, and that's definitely, you know, probably the safest way. Um, but from a therapeutic standpoint, I definitely try as much as I can to encourage people to go outside, you know, let's, let's try this person in a group. Okay. Yeah. We can't do groups anymore. Um, I'm sure it's a fine line, you know, it's, it's, yeah, I, I commend you for wanting to like, you know, just like try that little extra. I feel like I do that too. I, I maybe I take people out of restraints a little more liberally <laughs> than I should. <laughs> Sometimes like all they want to do is, you know, get the mitt off of their hands so they can scratch their face and like, yeah. okay, you may pull your NG tube out, but I'll watch you and make sure that you don't. <laughs> because I feel like this mitt is making you more anxiety, you know, giving you more anxiety than anything yeah. else. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> you did say, I heard you say like, you know, we called a code in that situation. Tell me a little bit about like what code situations look like. Sure. Patients. Yeah. So there's, um, so there's, you know, medical codes and psychiatric codes. So a medical code would be like a code blue. And if we are in a hospital where, you know, there are other people then like the, the usual, uh, medical response team would provide or would respond. Um, and then if it's a psychiatric code, there are usually a couple different levels. So there's like a show of force. So that's Mm -hmm. basically if there's kind of some, you know, you're with someone and you're worried that they're escalating, but you feel like bringing people in will kind of help them deescalate a little bit. 
then you can call, uh, you know, a show of force or there's mm-hmm. a code of someone's being, you know, physically violent or like destroying property. And that would mm-hmm. be, you know, then people would respond and those codes usually end in some kind of seclusion or restraint. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. And then sometimes and- too, you know, you can, you can call a code and you can say, okay, I'm going to try and so those are kind of the best code scenarios where you have enough time, you've seen the person escalating, you know what's you know that this, you know, is not heading in a great direction. And then you can call the code team, you can say, okay, this is what I'm gonna say, this is what I'm gonna try to do. If this happens, then we're gonna do this. Mm. If this happens, then we're gonna do this. And then sometimes okay. a third thing happens that no one was prepared for. But you know, those are definitely the best scenarios where you can kind of, you know, give everyone A, B, and C. Sometimes okay. it's just, you know. And then in the code situation, like who comes to the code? Um, So you're supposed to have a code leader, which is normally the nurse, or if Mm -hmm. there is a patient care tech who is, uh, you know, has really good rapport with the patient, then maybe that person will be the code lead. Um, So whoever's leading the code should usually be the person that either has the most experience or has the best relationship with the patient. I see. Um, And then if it's a hospital with security, security will come. Um, my hospital did not have security. So, you know, everyone from each different unit would be assigned to the code team. And then if there was a medical code, you know, just a nurse from each unit would respond. Um, and we would determine, you know, if that person needed to be sent to the emergency department or, you know, what, ha- what needed to happen. Um, and then if it was a violence code, basically the person from each unit that was on the code team would respond to help. And then sometimes we would call like an all, if it was, you know, really bad, we would call like an all available mail or, you know, an all available staff. Um, and then just everyone who's available responds. Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay. Okay. I know. Cause in the codes, like medical codes, a lot of times we would have like a pharmacist come mm-hmm. or like we do well. And then in behavioral emergencies, like, you know, Bert calls, mm-hmm. we have psych, psych come, you know, and like, there's, there's like interdisciplinary people come. I wasn't sure if that also happens or if it's largely just like nursing strong. Yeah. Yeah. It, it definitely is a lot of, um, so at the, at the psychiatric hospital, what the staff is primarily nurses and, um, patient care techs or like MHTs, I think we call them, um, mm-hmm. mental health technicians. And then we have some like, uh, some uh, art therapists and different types mm. of um, therapists that would come and like lead groups. And then we had, you know, our physicians um, and we had a pharmacist. But yeah, I guess it was pretty, pretty nursing heavy. Yeah, that's so, that's nursing strong. <laughs> <laughs> I, I remember in clinical, I remember really appreciating the art therapists Mm -hmm. or the the therapists in like group therapy. I remember like just thinking that she was so knowledgeable in the patient population. I felt like everything she said was like, you know, calming and therapeutic. Like it, it was such a, you know, do you have like stories from like those, those like types of disciplines or like, I don't know how, how important, I guess, have in your experience as those therapists been in the setting? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think so kind of, um, historically some of the most, uh, challenging patients to work with in the inpatient setting can be patients with personality disorders. Mm -hmm. Um, because, uh, you know, a lot of the time it's very difficult to, 
negotiate in their head between good and bad attention. Um, Mm -hmm. and so if, and so there's a very low ability to, to tolerate, um, you know, negative emotions. Um, so, you know, these are patients that are much more likely to self-harm that, you know, for whatever reason, I once had a patient who was, you know, standing on one of the tables in the kitchen. She's like, I'm, I'm killing myself. This is it. She's like Mm -hmm. this high off the ground, but it was, you know, something in the, in the hospital too, that's unique in the psychiatric, um, kind of wings are you have to worry about your milieu, right? Because you have people with very serious trauma and you might have someone who's really psychotic right next to them yelling, you know, about rape or something really, really difficult to hear about. And the the person who's psychotic, they don't know what they're saying, but the person right next to them is like, what, what is wrong with this guy? Like, how are you letting him do this? And so it's really difficult. So Patients with personality disorders too can do things like say they're going to dive off the table and then it gets everyone on the unit upset and want, you know, why aren't you helping this person? Um, mm. So the, the art therapists and kind of all the, the specialty therapists are very, very, you know, helpful in those scenarios because the, with patients with personality disorder in the inpatient setting, I found the more you can do proactively, the better your day is going to go. So, yeah. you know, Anytime I was on, you know, is there an occupational therapist available to come and just sit with this person and work on worksheets or because in the inpatient setting, you're running around putting out fires all the time, right? So the mm-hmm. patient who's sitting there nicely coloring is not getting any attention. The patient who's threatening to dive off the table, that's the person who's getting all of the attention. Yeah. So just doing, you know, I, I felt like they were very, very helpful in that. Um, and two, you know, a lot of the patients that might not be getting as much attention because they're there for, you know, depression or anxiety or something that is not really as, I don't want to say as acute, but really as um, kind of demanding as mm-hmm. some of the other diagnoses, that was great opportunities for them as well to kind of express themselves in like a safe setting. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, I'm definitely very appreciative of those, those specialties. Yeah. I wanted to go back to um, codes. We had talked about a uh, medical emergency that I've never seen, but that you've probably seen before, which is N- NMS. Yeah, right? yeah. Neuro- is it neuromuscular? Yes, right. Neuroleptic malignant syndrome. Yes. So yeah. So NMS is pretty rare, um, and it basically happens when someone has too much of an antipsychotic. Um, so mm-hmm. they've got too much, you know, dopamine blockade going on basically. Um, mm-hmm. so it's more, it's more risky in the older antipsychotics. And if it's being administered intramuscularly, um, that can be more dangerous. And then too, it's highly, um, neuroleptics are highly fat loving. They're lipophilic. So mm-hmm. we had a, a patient who was very, very psychotic and she, um, or they were a fall risk, uh, and they were just jumping all over the place, screaming. I mean, it was just, we just were having to medicate this poor person over and over and over again because mm. they were picking, picking stuff up and it was just a lot. So, oh, you know, this person, we were just in her room all the time, all the time, all the time. And then it was coming towards the end of my shift. I was working three to 11. It was probably around nine. And I was like, Oh wow. I haven't heard from this person in a while. Like, I'm, I'm going to go give them their meds. Like I should check on them. And the staff is like, no, no, no. Like if they're sleeping, just let them sleep. It's like, I don't know. I don't know about that. Yeah. So I went in and this person was just sitting on the couch very quietly. 
I was like, okay. And then I went up and I touched their arm and their arm was very hot and they weren't, you know, normally anything I would try and do with this person, they would do the opposite thing, you know? Mm -hmm. And so they were letting me take their blood pressure, which was through the roof. And the second they kind of started cooperating with me, I was like, okay, this person doesn't feel good. Like, yeah. And so we ended up, you know, getting blood draws. Um, something really common with NMS is very high CPK. So that was through the roof. Um, and the person ended up getting transferred to the ICU and actually ended up being helicoptered to a trauma uh, hospital that night. Um, wow. And so, yeah, fortunately they survived. They got a ton of fluids and all of that. Um, you know, all mm. the medicine was able to get out of their system. But something I learned and something you have to be careful of is, you know, the meds are ordered every four hours as needed. And this person really needed these medications, but because they were so overweight, the distribution of the medication in their body really changed. Mm. So that was, you know, one of the times I was like, oh, okay, fine. I see you. I got you. Yeah. Um, I feel like that makes so much sense. Yeah. So that was very, very interesting. Um, and I'm glad they ended up being okay, but that was a good lesson to learn too. You know, if yeah. you, every single time in my career, if I felt bad about something and I followed up, I was very, very glad that I followed up. Yeah. Oh, I'm yeah. It's it really helps to have that full circle moment because you can prevent it. I mean, do you see yourself doing anything like differently or as the team? I mean, because you're saying she was acutely psychotic, you know, like was there anything you felt like you could have done differently or was that pretty much like an inevitable thing? Yeah. that you were watching out for. I mean, I think maybe we could have gotten, you know, a physician's opinion. Sometimes everyone's so busy. Like part of me mm -hmm. feels like if we had called the doctor, they would have said, you know, what do you, you have PRNs, just give her the PRNs. What are you talking about? Um, yeah. But I don't know. It's the, I think just the, you know, medicines have side effects and I think that's mm -hmm. important to remember. And, you know, I think yeah. at the end of the day, that person did need those medicines. And I think the risk of her falling was really high and hitting her head. And so maybe if we, you know, who knows, maybe if we didn't administer, she would have hit her head and we would have been in a whole different scenario. Right. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I yeah. think, I think probably the takeaway is just any, any non-medicine interventions that you can do, you know, use those as much as you can. Um, because mm -hmm. if there was a way that we could have maybe staved off some of those medicines or, you know, anything yeah. that we could have done to just decrease the, um, the, what's the word I'm looking for? The amount of things in her body, you know what I yeah. mean? Yeah. Yeah. It does sound like you're in a rock and a hard place though, yeah. like in between... You know, I'm sure you probably get into those situations all the time, you know, really. Yeah. And it's hard to, cause a lot of people who are psychotic are, are, do not know that they're psychotic. You know what I mean? Yeah. So it's like, it's like talking to someone with virtual reality goggles on who doesn't know that they're wearing them. So they don't know that you can't hear and see what they're seeing. Yeah. Um, yeah. and especially, you know, people with delusions, so there, you know, there's hallucinations, which are auditory, visual, you're getting incoming stimuli that the people around you are not getting. Mm -hmm. And there's delusions, which are your fixed, you know, these fixed beliefs that you have. Mm -hmm. And it, people with delusions can be really hard to work with because those beliefs are very fixed. It's like me saying, you know, to you, this, the sky's purple. And you're like, Sarah, I'm looking at the sky. It's blue. I'm like Maggie, no, the sky is purple. 
Yeah. And you're like, what are you talking about? I'm looking <laughs> at it. Like, what do you mean? You know? Yeah. So. I, I remember, I think probably back, I don't remember when I learned this, but like the one thing I remember when talking to people with hallucinations or delusions is, is I remember being taught like, don't automatically say like that's, or don't invalidate what they're seeing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, is that, is that still yeah. like ring true? Like, what do you, what do you really like say to those people when they're saying, you know, there are bugs all over my walls and, you know, like, do you like let them have that space? Do you say like, I understand that you are anxious because this is what you're seeing, yeah. but yeah. like, how yeah. do you navigate that? <laughs> yeah, definitely. So you're exactly right. You don't want to invalidate cause you're just going, you're just going to go nowhere. Um, and you don't, you know, you don't necessarily want to be like, yeah, I see the bugs too. Um, -hmm. so I mean, something that my professor talked about in, um, graduate school and something that I've witnessed too, is just really focusing on the emotion behind the delusion. Mm -hmm. Um, so we had a, a patient who was pretty psychotic, um, had been violent in the emergency department and I'm, you know, standing kind of in the middle of the unit and I see one of the care techs walking backwards and he's saying, call a code, call a code, call a code. Like, what is this guy talking about? And then I see this patient walking and we had these metal phones on the wall, which were probably, you know, unsafe to begin with. But mm-hmm. this patient had ripped the metal phone off the wall and she kind of had the phone and was like, you know, very, very angry. And so this patient was saying, my children have been kidnapped by Justin Timberlake. I, he has my kids. I know he has my kids. Like, you need to let me out to go get them. And of course, we're on a locked unit. This person has this phone. We're all kind of frozen. And the nurse that I worked with said, sounds like you're really worried about your children. Like, I, I imagine you're really scared. and It must suck that you can't go get them. She's like, yeah. And the nurse said, you know, you. I, it seems like you're such a good mom. Like, uh, I'm so sorry that you can't be with your kids right now. And so by just identifying that emotion of I'm worried about my kids and I can't get to them and not, you know, going into Justin Timberlake can't have your kids and all this stuff. We really got right to the meat of it. And we were able to say, do you want to, you know, call your mom and ask about the kids or something like that. And so we were able to kind of focus away from this narrative and into the emotion. So I feel like anytime you can do that, that's really helpful. That's so powerful to, yeah. Like, I think that's a great takeaway to have for those patients. Just really focus on the emotion behind. Don't like, you know, lead into the hallucination or I, so I've seen that firsthand happen in patients where people are like, you know, like talking about bugs on the wall or they have to get to work or, Mm -hmm. you know, somebody like an 80 year old patient that's having, um, sundowning and, you know, they're like, Oh, I gotta, I gotta find my keys. I gotta get to work. Like it's easy for people to just be like, it's Saturday. You yeah. don't have to go to work, <laughs> you yeah. know, yeah. but like, but, but like, I think I, somebody had told me once, like, it's not good to, you know, lead into those delusions because you mm-hmm. just validate it and, and prolong it, you know, instead of really getting to that, you know, maybe a better way to go about that conversation would be like, I don't know, you're too sick. Yeah. yeah. I don't know. Yeah. yeah. Or <laughs> I don't know. I'm not good at this. <laughs> <Doing great. laughs> or like, you know, I'm, I'm 
yeah, I feel really sorry that you can't, you know, go to work right now. I don't know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or, yeah, is there something you're worried about missing or, you know? Yeah. I don't, yeah. I was talking to somebody, too, about how family members tend to do that, too, where all they want to do is, you know, alleviate the stress of their Mm -hmm. loved one in the bed. And so they'll say, you know, they'll just like go along with it, but then the family members leave and then you're left with like this very delusional, (laughs) validated This narrative that's been enforced (laughs) all day. Yeah. Like, oh no. (laughs) So yeah, just focusing on the root of it. That would be a really great exercise to do. I think in the inpatient setting, like having kind of like case study or, or like, um, you know, examples, like what would you say to this patient? Yeah, definitely. Definitely. We did mm-hmm. too, something that was really helpful in, um, my graduate school is we would do, you know, simulations, but they were paid actors. And so you would have, you know, four or five scenarios that you would prep for beforehand. And then the actor would work out one of those scenarios. So that's, that's so funny that you said that we were talking, I don't know if you listened to the episode that we did with Shannon Bennis, Bennis. Yes, I did. Yes. That was her exact idea. (laughs) That was her exact idea. (laughs) Having like the theater kids come. And then we were like, I don't know. We would just be like, I don't know, laughing through the whole thing. But but I, I thought that was like a really, that's so funny that that's actually implemented because it, it makes so much sense. Like get into like really have somebody really feel those emotions and make you practice that communication. Yeah, definitely. Cause when you're doing it, like, first of all, I would dread stuff like that. Cause I don't want to go up in front. I don't want to go up and act in front of people. And then yeah. too, it's like, you know, it's your friend that you're doing it with. And you're just like the first thing they say, you're like, thank you. I feel a hundred percent better. Please give my yes, friend an right. yeah. Can we be done now? Please? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I want to know some of the most memorable stories from your, we've talked a lot about inpatient. What about like outpatient setting or case management? Is there, are there things that stick out in your mind from the last three years? Um, I've definitely had, I really enjoyed, um, a lot of the people that I worked with over the last several years. Um, I really got to make pretty close relationships with them and I had a pretty, consistent caseload, uh, for two years, which I really appreciated. Um, I've oh, had, like I mean, the same I've, patients, mm-hmm, you mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I've had people contact me and say that they're suicidal and, you know, I'm, I'm apart from them and it's not really like being in the hospital. Um, so, you know, I'm calling the, so in the, in Massachusetts and in the Boston area, we have the best team. So, uh, you know, the emergency services team and you can contact them. Um, but sometimes too, people really don't want to go to the hospital. So if people are having a really hard time they're you know, I'm going to be okay. I'm going to be okay, but I don't know if I'm going to be okay. So I try and remind people too, that the emergency services team is just there to help you find the best way forward. I think people have a lot of memories of feeling like they've been, you know, kind of carted off to the hospital. Mm. Um, so that's been hard. I've had two, I've helped a couple people work through, um, like long-term benzo withdrawal, um, Mm. which has been very, very difficult. Uh, I would, you know, it's benzos are, you know, like with opiates, a lot of stuff is a bit of a problem these days, but coming off of these medicines and this person wasn't on a high dose at all. Yeah. And 
and they were, you know, they would just call me and they were so anxious. I'd say, you know, it's, I'm going to call you next week. And they're like, yeah, if I'm alive and they weren't, you know, being dramatic or facetious, their anxiety was so bad that they thought that they were going to die. And it was Mm. just, it's just awful. Um, I have some happy stories too. I feel like I picked a couple sad ones. (laughs) I think you've got some happy ones in there. I, I've just been really enjoying hearing all of the stories. Like I said before, it's something that, you know, you don't always see behind the locked unit, you know, so yeah, I, I, I know other nurses are going to love these stories too, happy <laughs> or sad. I think they're invaluable. Oh, good. Thank you. Okay, good. I'm glad. <laughs> <laughs> I do want to talk about how 2020 and COVID affected people with mental health disorders because we know that, you know, although it was necessary, quarantine and staying at home and social distancing had a profound effect on mental health of the greater community, Mm -hmm. let alone, you know, community with chronic mental health conditions. So what do you, um, you know, what were some of the biggest challenges that you saw for the inpatient psych population or, well, the community last year? Because I know you were in the community last year. Yeah, yeah, sure. I mean, I know for some of my for some of my friends who are working inpatient, it wasn't, it was a lot more difficult to get people admitted. Um, so I think they actually felt kind of like less overwhelmed and felt a little bit like they had kind of like an enclosed space that they were working in. Um, uh, from the community standpoint, there were some pros in the sense that people that I was working with who didn't, you know, there were so many resources for people who weren't making any money, you know? So they were able to, things that we had been trying to get them for a while, we were like, you know, jumping on, getting applications in, and people were finally able to, you know, get some money and get some services. There were lots of food banks. So that was good. Um, Some of the, I mean, for me, I've been working at that point, everyone I've been working with, I've been working with for about two years. So I had a really good relationship with them. I was working from home. Um, they were all, you know, more or less pretty safe in where they were staying. So I feel mm-hmm. like personally, I wasn't super affected. Um, I know that for some of my colleagues who worked in group homes, that was really difficult um, mm-hmm. because people that live in group homes tend to be more severe on the um, on the spectrum. Um, you know, a lot of them have pretty chronic schizophrenia. Uh, and it was really, really difficult for them to keep the residents inside the house. And there are a lot of restrictions in Massachusetts about, you know, what you can do. Um, so they couldn't even like, you know, stand in front of a door and say like, you have to stay inside. That would be, you know, considered a restraint. Um, so these, you know, and the staff had to keep going to work, even though sometimes these people were going out in the community and it just was really difficult to process like, I understand that you want to go smoke cigarettes with your friends, but there's this really serious virus that's going, you know, there just wasn't that level of understanding. Um, So I think that was really, really difficult. I'm sure like conspiracy theories too are probably hit people with chronic schizophrenia really, really hard. Yeah. Yeah. And just, yeah, just like this doesn't, it's, it's really hard to picture this kind of invisible thing that doesn't really apply to you right now. You know, I think, I think too, that was more, I think definitely as time went on, I think it kind of sunk in and I think as everything Mm -hmm. was closed and there wasn't really that much to do anyway. Yeah. I think that that helped. And I mean, we did have a couple people get sick in the, like in the houses. 
Um, so I think that kind of mm. made it really evident too. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. I didn't even realize how, you know, I mean, I know that there was a huge focus on, you know, pr- protecting people's mental health last year. I didn't even think about how positively, you know, funding and everything and, and you know, like those stimulus checks for everybody would yeah. have benefited. That's, that's awesome. I'm yeah. I, yeah. I think I was only, I was just thinking that there was a negative impact, but I'm happy to know that that like gave okay. people extra services and stuff. Yeah, there were, there were some positives for sure. But, and I mean, I think the biggest thing now is that there's a huge mental health crisis going on with everyone that's been, you know, so traumatized working throughout the pandemic um, everywhere mm-hmm. that I applied to, to be a nurse practitioner so that they have wait lists over six months long, you know, everyone's mm-hmm. sense of control has just been shattered. So any kind of underlying anxiety, depression, one of the theories of how mental illness develops that I kind of most, um, relate with is this idea that there are these, you know, you have certain predisposing markers And then you have kind of the trajectory of your life. So, Mm -hmm. you know, someone with a predisposing marker and someone without might experience the same scenario, but one person might develop a mental illness and one person might not. And that might be because of the way they grew up. That might be because of certain biological things that might be because of their, you know, how they interpreted it. So I think this pandemic really exposed a lot of people that might, you know, might, might not have been exposed otherwise. Yeah, absolutely. That makes so much sense. Mm. Yeah. So we need lots and lots of mental health providers. If anyone's anyone's interested, please. I mean, I've definitely seen an uptick in like resources like BetterHelp Mm -hmm. and like apps and, and remote ways to get in touch with therapists. Now I've seen them more on like advertising on social media and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. The apps are definitely great. Also too, um, the, any kind of trauma, anything, the, or anyone who feels, you know, traumatized through either what they saw working or through what they experienced. Um, the VA has a ton of great apps and resources, all free. Mm. And, um, they have done, you know, so much research and work in the trauma field. Uh, so those have been, you know, really helpful for people too, I think. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. In the broader scheme of things, you know, what have you found to be some of the most challenging aspects of psych nursing? Sure. And then maybe some of the most rewarding aspects. Sure. Yeah. Um, I think one of my most challenging and rewarding days was actually the same day. Um, so <laughs> I had one of those. <laughs> so I was working a double shift. So I was working 7 a.m. to 11 p.m. And um, there was a patient who had been really, really difficult. They were having a really hard time detoxing, and they were basically just feeling very angry, really not feeling well, and just you know yelling at one patient who would then you know, cry and go say something to another patient. Then the patient would come to, it was just like really, really difficult and just really, really, um, disrupting our kind of milieu. So at that time too, our nurse manager was filling in as a director. So they weren't present on the floor. And then, so I was in charge and then also trying to, to, you know, uh, 
transfer this patient to Amelia that was either because we were one of the biggest units in the hospital. So we had so many by people. Milieu, what do you mean by milieu? Milieu is kind of like the environment on the unit. So, um, you know, one of your kind of goals as a nurse is to keep that milieu kind of calm and Mm. um, therapeutic. So a place where people feel like they are, um, you know, there aren't these stimuli that are increasing their already kind of fragile state. So, you know, a really chaotic milieu would be when there are a couple of different psychotic patients who are you know, yelling or, mm-hmm. um, you know, there's, you know, we've had patients, uh, with pseudo seizures who will just, you know, walk into the middle of the, walk into the middle of the common area and start seizing. And then everyone around is like, why aren't you helping them? So that would be, you know, like a pretty chaotic milieu where also too, we have times where everyone's just sitting, you know, drawing, eating, relaxing, and that would be kind of a calm milieu. And that's what you're kind mm-hmm. of always striving for. Um, to not, you know, trigger someone to have a, you know, an increase in what they're experiencing. Yeah. Okay. Um, so we go, you know, we tell this patient that they're going to transfer. The patient's very upset, then come back. Multiple nurse managers are calling me saying, we're not transferring. We're not taking this person. So then I have to go back, tell the patient that they're not transferring. The patient's yelling at me. The nurse practitioner is talking about what a bad, you know, kind of job I've done in front of the patient. And I was just like, I have had it. So I just walk into my manager's office and just start bawling, crying. And I'm, Mm. you know, I'm so tired. I'm so embarrassed because I'm crying and people are going to know that I've been crying. And I still have eight hours to work. So finally my manager comes and she's like, you know, do you, do you want to transfer to another unit? Do you want to just like go to a unit where it's a little more calm I was like, no, you know, I, I know the patients, I know the staff that's going to be on this afternoon. Like, I just really want to work out my shift and then go home. And that patient who had been really angry and aggressive had a lot of Ativan available to them as needed. So they were getting some Ativan, getting some Ativan, you know, within the orders. And again, I had this feeling before I was leaving, it was 11 o'clock. I was finally getting to go home and I hadn't seen that patient. And I was like, I don't know about this. So I walked back to their room and again, they were burning up. They were minimally mm-hmm. responsive, um, ended up kind of vomiting out of their nose. So we called a code. Uh, mm-hmm. They got rushed to the emergency department and they had actually thrown a PE. Um, oh my God. Yeah. And so, you know, they ended up being okay. And I was really glad that I stayed because I feel like I really saved that person's life by checking on them. You know what I yeah. mean? And so I was like, Okay. I, that was the day that I was like, I need to take a step back from inpatient from a little bit. I, this is becoming too much for me now. Yeah. Um, but I was really, I was really proud of myself for staying. I was really happy that I followed that instinct to check on that patient. Um, yeah. Yeah. That's, that's because honestly, you would have been the only person that could have caught that because Mm -hmm. that was shift change. And so that person's you know, the, per, the oncoming RN could potentially assume that as being their baseline. And then yeah. that would have been. Exactly. It and it was patient. going into overnight. So if the person, yeah. you know, thinking they're sleeping. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, well, good for you. <laughs> I, I, those days are some of the most, you're like, do I really need to be doing this to myself? Yeah, like, yeah. Is this, this is a lot I of... Cho- this, I chose this for myself? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, yeah, I definitely had like... those days. Are there areas for improvement in this discipline? You think that as, you know, going into your new role as a mental health nurse practitioner, do you feel like, is there any areas that you hope to improve on or things that you've saw that you're maybe excited to get into to better the discipline? Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, one of the things I'd really like to see is a better integration between kind of the mental health and the physical health worlds. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I think we're heading that way. A lot of jobs that I applied to were for psychiatric nurse practitioners in primary care settings um, or like, you know, an integrative behavioral health um, and medical clinic. I think especially, too, we're seeing so much the negative effects of these uh, second generation antipsychotics that we're putting that people are taking. Um, Mm -hmm. So, you know, with with the first generation antipsychotics, there would be a lot of involuntary movement, a lot of shuffling. Then -hmm. we came out with this new class of medications that did not cause that, which was very exciting. Um, But now we're starting to see a lot of weight gain. you know, development of diabetes, development of, Mm -hmm. um, you know, uh, chronic cardiac issues, things Mm -hmm. like that. So, you know, I'd really like to see integration in that sense and integration in the sense of treating, you know, the whole person. Um, that was something I really enjoyed about my case management role is, you know, you would see the GI doctor doing something and you would see the primary care doctor doing something and you would see a psychologist doing something and you're like, okay, hold, hold on guys. We're, we're prescribing this for weight gain, but then we've got this person prescribing something that causes weight gain, like, or sorry, we're prescribing yeah. this for weight loss. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, yeah. so I really enjoyed kind of integrating all of those things together and, you know, seeing the person as a person instead of a collection of symptoms and that we can just kind of, you know, cut that symptom you know, send that symptom to that person to treat. Can you give me any sort of advice for a listener who may be considering psych nursing or anything kind of retrospectively that you feel like you would have known, you know, you wish you would have known like going into the field? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, I think that when I chose to go into psych, I felt really worried that people wouldn't think that I was like as much of a nurse or as good of a nurse because I wasn't doing something medical. And so I carried mm-hmm. this, you know, chip around for a little bit. And I really wish that I had not thought that because as I've, you know, kind of continued to grow in my career, I, I have realized that that really doesn't seem to be the sentiment at all that people feel, you know, um, really grateful for the work that we do. Um, and I think, you know, in general, something I've learned kind of in my career and in my life is you spend all this time worrying what people are thinking about you and you realize that no one's, no one cares about you at all. No one's thinking (laughs) about you or focusing on what you're doing or thinking what kind of nurse is Sarah, you know? So I wish that I hadn't, you know, wasted, wasted time on that. I Um, think that just based on the, the stories that you are saying, you know, today, your level of your expertise in therapeutic communication is, is well surpassed what a lot of people that I work in the inpatient setting. And we have, we still need those skills. We still, you know, I mean, a lot of times you can prioritize the medical things, but every patient that you come in contact with needs to, you need to have a, you know, 
a rapport with them. And I feel like that's a huge strength in psych nursing, like being able to foster those skills. I mean, those are, those are nursing skills. They're like soft skills, but Mm -hmm. they're soft skills that we use every single day. Yeah. So I think that that's, I feel like I've learned in this episode, that's like a, a huge, you know, you should never have a chip on your shoulder for not needing to do, you know, IVs and stuff. That's your, such an important, you know, such an important position. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. I appreciate you saying that. And I, I liked what you and Shannon were talking about, um, about kind of some of the aspects of nursing that, you know, once you have your skill base and you have that built, but some of the things that are really special are, you know, holding people's hands, being part of people's families, you know, things like that. So yeah, I think, yeah, I think that's one of the really, really special things about nursing, you know, the art and the science kind of blended together. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then, um, one other thing that I was kind of thinking about is I was, um, when I started out in nursing, I think I was just so excited. Like I had, I had done all the schoolwork. I'd passed, I passed my boards. I, and you know, I just had so many nurses and so many people that I looked up to that I wanted to be. And so I would take every extra assignment, you know, difficult patient, great, give it to me. An extra assessment, I'm fine. Yeah, I'll give your meds for you. And I was just going, going, going because I, you know, every code, I'll lead this code, I'll deescalate this patient, like I'll do this. And I was driving to work one day and I was talking to my mom, who is one of my mentors and also my hero. And she was telling me about how I was like, mom, I I can't do today. I don't know what I'm going to do. I have to go in in like 10 minutes and I can't do it. And she was like, put on your armor it's okay to feel vulnerable and it's okay to just put on a little bit of armor and to not be the super nurse running around. It's okay to just get through the day. Mm -hmm. And that is something that I have taken with me always. And something that I have, as I've gotten further in my career, really kind of tried to make a point to do is I don't have to be the one to respond to this code. I can take a kind of supportive role And I realized too that I feel like that almost makes me kind of better to work with because I'm giving other nurses the opportunity to grow their skills and to be the one to, you know, share their opinions. And instead of me kind of, you know, tirading around, um, I'm, you know, being more of a team. And, you know, too, I think it can be, I think when it comes to de-escalating patients or just working in nursing in general, you can feel like you're hitting your head into this wall and to take a step back feels like you failed. And Mm. that's not necessarily the case. You know, if you're trying to deescalate this person, trying to deescalate them and it's not working, you might just be agitating them. You know what I mean? And that's nothing about you. You might not be the person. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) And that's not you personally or anything. It's just, you know, it's not you failing. It's almost you kind of reaching a higher level. I feel like of assessment and clinical judgment and saying, okay, I'm not helping this person. So I need to step away. Not, you know. Yeah. I totally agree. You know, like understanding like, okay, I think I need to remove myself from the situation. I think leaving space for yourself to be a human and also leaving space for other people to, 
you know, increase their own skills by stepping away. I think that that's definitely a heightened level of awareness, like self-awareness that I'm sure can only benefit you. Yeah. Well, I think that we are going to end it here. But awesome. I am, this is such a great conversation. I feel like I learned so much <laughs> and I have so much respect for psych nurses. Not that I didn't before, but now that I know like, you know, your lens and inside, I'm just, um, have nothing but respect for you guys. So Yo. thank you so much for coming on today. Of course. Thank you for inviting me. I had so much fun. That brings us to the end of the show. Thanks for tuning in to Nursing Uncharted. To learn more about today's episode, make sure to explore the show notes at AmericanMobile.com slash Nursing Uncharted. And don't forget to subscribe so you never miss a guest. If you're a nurse interested in traveling, visit AmericanMobile.com to explore the largest database of travel nursing jobs in the industry and the amazing benefits that American Mobile has to offer. Also, a special thanks to producer Jonathan Carey, assistant producers Katie Schrauben and Sam McKay, and Aiden Dykes for the music and editing. Until next time, take care of yourself.